One of the things I found very interesting about, you know, people contacting me, they would say things like, for the first time, I understand the Old Testament. For the first time, the Old Testament makes sense. For the first time, the story becomes so much more alive because I understand the context of what's actually going on there. Many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, and the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. Hey, campers, welcome to another episode of Camp Hermon. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Price. I've got Tori Peterson and Dr. Judd Burden in the house with me tonight. I got a new mic, so how do I sound? You sound as clear as the vision of many UFOs over the North American continent. <laughs> I don't know if that's clear. Is that clear? Is that a, I don't know if that's a positive thing. It's, it's clearly strange. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I'm having trouble. Foc- I mean, no, I shouldn't say this. I'm, I'm a very focused driver, but at night lately, it's like, I'm always looking up at whatever lights are in the sky. I'm like, is that a plane? Is it a plane? And <laughs> right. So far, I think they've all been planes over Kansas city as far as I've seen, but I'm looking. Yeah, we have, uh, Anaka and I, we've been also been observing the skies uh, a lot more as of late. So, Tor, if you want to jump in, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I just wanted to give you guys a really quick reminder. If you haven't tried Kevlar Joe's Camp Hermon blend, no, I'm sorry, Bigfoot blend. Um, it's amazing. We all love it. It's super delicious just the right amount of caffeine. If you use code CAMPERMON10 on their website, you can get 10% off. And also I wanted to let you guys know that merch is on our website. So go check that out, grab some. It's really comfy. We love it. Yeah. So you can go to kevlarjoe.com for the coffee, go to camperman.com for some merch. We've also got a link to Kevlar Joe. So you can, you can find everything there. Um, we appreciate your guys' support. So any likes, share, subscribes, you want to buy merch, coffee, any way you'd like to support us, we appreciate that. We also love when you guys make memes, especially when they're about how Chris can't make memes. So keep that up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am notoriously terrible at memes. You had a few good ones. Credit where credit is due. I do my best every once in a while. What does they say? Um, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Hey, also, if you guys would like to donate, we can set up a Venmo to send Chris to meme school. So I think that would be a good use of donations. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Oh, it's a thing. Yeah. Also, guys, go to drjudburton.com too, if you're interested in checking out um, the new iteration of uh, his school. It's going to be launching very soon. You can uh, sign up with your email. And as soon as uh, the new courses launch, um, you guys will be the first to know. All right, guys, I'm super excited 
tonight, we have got author Gary Wayne coming on, and we're going to dig into all things Gen 6 conspiracy tonight. So we want to just say, hey, Gary, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you. Well, thank you for inviting me to your show and excited to talk to you guys tonight. I'm sure what, whatever we're going to talk about is going to, if, uh, if we do our job right, raise the eyebrows of the audience. That's kind of what we like to do and get them curious to dig deeper on things. So I'm all, I'm all set and so happy to be here. I'm super excited to have you. Yeah. So the first question, Gary, is I'm wondering what got you into all the research that you've done on uh, Genesis 6 and everything that that entails. Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a story for sure. So when I got interested, I kind of backed my way into what I ended up writing about. When I was very young, I was uh, having a couple of friends over and my brother, and they were talking well into the night about a whole bunch of really strange things. And then they popped out and said, okay, we want to test you on something. We've all had lots of beers, but we got something we want to talk to you about, but only if you have the courage to do it. And I said, well, what's that? Because I'm like 20 or 21 years old and ready to do anything. They said, well, there's a book we would like you to read if you have enough courage to read it. So I thought, well, I have to know what it is. I have a whole bunch of books running through my mind, not the book that they named. And it was the book by Hal Lindsey, who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, so I bought the book. I read it, scared the socks off of me. I wanted to verify it because, you know, even though I grew up uh, going to church, I had by that point in time walked away from Christianity, from the church, and bought into the whole evolution thing and everything else. And so I wanted to verify whether or not this was another manipulation. Uh, and typically, uh, there's a lot, you know, of writers out there, unfortunately, over the decades that manipulate the Bible significantly. So, I started to check out the verses, found out the verses seemed to be correct, but I needed to know more. So then I thought, well, the only way I'm going to really verify this, because this seems really important, is I need to reread the Bible. And as I'm doing so, I'm going to try and pick out the few prophecy verses that are probably there. But of course, at that naive particular time, I didn't realize how many prophecy narratives are actually there. So I had to go back, start all over again and create more files. And I was doing handwritten files because this is like back in like 1980. So a long time ago. And, you know, every time I read the book in the beginning, as I was doing this, I'd get to Genesis six and I'd go, I don't want to deal with that. Whatever that is, I just want nothing to do with. But the thing is you can't because it keeps popping up, not necessarily the Nephilim, but the giants and tribes related to the giants and to the mystical religion and the demons and the fallen angels and the pro prophecies. I just can't sort of ignore it. So, you know, after about 15 years or so of biblical research and logging all of the narratives, I thought, you know what, I have about 14 or 15 books that I could possibly write if I could get published and people would actually buy the book and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, what can I do? I said, well, maybe I'll start with a short book. Maybe I'll do something that's kind of fun and I'll learn a little bit more about it as I go. So I thought I'd write a short book about how Genesis 6 giants might connect to end time prophecy. And I wrote the first 10 chapters quite quickly. I'm also a mythology buff and I'm a history buff as well. As I was doing the research, I realized through my childhood and my reading before and my research that the Genesis 6 story is a monotheist story about what the polytheist cultures teach throughout the world. It's this common legacy. They just view it through a polytheist lens. And so I thought, I think Christians might want to know that 
there's some consistency in prehistory because there's common legacy in prehistory, just seen through these different lenses, the polytheist lens and the monotheist lens. And today you have the so-called secular lens. So you've got just different lenses that are interpreting those events. So I started to add in things like Greek mythology. Then I thought, well, I know there's Sumerian mythology. And then I, you know, as, as I was doing it, like getting into like the Popol Vuh and the Kishimaya and, and their writings, I realized that not only was it a legacy around the world, but to understand the context of those cultures, you need to understand the religion. And when I started to dig into the holy books even deeper from the other religions, I realized that secret societies were also part of this whole mix that was in the beginning and, and this knowledge cult. And so then I needed to learn about secret societies because mystery schools and secret societies were wedded all throughout history. And so when I went down that rabbit hole, it was like 10 years before I started to pop my head back up. I wasn't sure I was ever going to pop my head back up and I'm not sure I did the right thing. And it was really rather bizarre and eye-opening, but I did it. And then I started to put it back together and into the book. That's how I got to where I published the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And I have to tell you, you know, along the way, I thought many times, like, this is crazy. I, mean, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to do it. Nobody's going to believe me. Everybody's going to mock me. My family's going to disown me. All of those sorts of things. And But I, I just, every time I, I sort of, said that's enough I'm done with this project I kept sort of get calling back and it wouldn't go away and so I kept pushing forward and then I had to get it published and of course that's a whole process in itself so um, and then you find out that the marketing that they promised probably isn't going to be there because you're an unknown no platform and a high cost because it's a big book so I had to learn how to get out there and do social media, which I didn't do. I had to learn how to do shows, radio shows, video shows, conferences, all of stuff that I, that I hadn't done before. So it was quite, quite a journey. Is the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, is that your first book or have you previously? It, it, it is the first book and it was published at the end of 2015 and uh, sort of started to hit the market in 2016 and it continues to sell more every year. So it hasn't sort of peaked yet, even though it's kind of a limited sort of uh, demographic that's out there. What I thought, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to sort of cross over into other demographics, not just Christian. So, but the risk is, is that if you do that, you might upset your target audience. But I wanted to draw other people in to give the Bible another look. So that was the first project. And then I said, I would never write a sequel to it. And I actually have a book I'm 300 pages into uh, on a prophet, on a, another prophecy story, but you know, about second Exodus and the Holy Covenant and how that all comes together in the end time. And my publisher was after me to do a sequel for years. And I said, no, that's not what I want to do. But what happens is, is that when you do a lot of shows and you make yourself available to the public is people contact you, which is a good thing because they ask questions, they ask for information. And what I learned is that Christians really wanted somebody to go deeper. 
as much information as in the first book. They want way more information than that they're provided that's within the Bible. And yes, you can use other sources, but make sure everything is 100% biblically done. And the first book, I do measure everything in it against what the Bible says, but the second book that will be coming out, and it'll be called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, How Understanding Prehistory and Giants Helps to Define End-Time Prophecy, uh, it goes so deep into the meanings of the words, uh, important historical parallel stories that help sort of help define, but in a way that's different, and not to be what I would say is redundant to the first book, so that you could read both books independently, but that you probably will want to dovetail both of them together. Wow. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I myself am just a few chapters into uh, your first book, and I've got some questions for you. In the book, you say that the sciences bestowed to Adam were of unimaginable worth, for they contained the secrets of the universe. Um, and so what sort of secrets do you think that were bestowed to Adam? So that's as per what the, the Masons believe uh, in terms of their beginnings and where the first set of bank of knowledge that they have uh, began with. And I don't necessarily disagree. I may disagree to the extent of that knowledge. But if you look at what happens with Adam, he is created in singular. Eve's going to be created sometime down the road. We don't know how long. And he's going to be put into this large track of land from the Nile to the Euphrates. And it is absolutely huge. And when you get into the language of what's happening in, in Genesis 1, there are orchards. There are crops of all sorts. There are animals and things that they're raising uh, that are domesticated. He is managing a gigantic project. And to do that, you're going to need knowledge. You're going to need knowledge of the stars. You're going to be, need knowledge of the seasons. You're going to need to do everything that, let's say, the farmers try and do today. But we're not told of that technology that would be there. But what we're told is, is that Adam is able to do that, and that knowledge would have to come from God. So where I link with the polytheist lens on that is, is that God would have taught him significant things, Eve as well. And then that knowledge would have been passed on to his progeny after being ostracized from Eden. And that would have went first to Abel and Cain. And then after the death of Abel and Cain is ostracized and goes to Nod, then Seth would have learned that knowledge as well. So that's the knowledge that the Masons would base the original seven sciences that Enoch, son of Cain, splits that knowledge into seven different disciplines. What are those seven different disciplines? Well, they're the same seven liberal arts that we have in university today. So you're going to have grammar, you're going to have rhetoric, you're going to have arithmetic, you're going to have uh, astronomy, you're going to have music, uh, you're going to have geometry, which the fifth one they also call in the craft is um, <coughs> masonry. And so, you know, and out of the first three sciences uh, of the of the writing and speaking uh arts comes the fusion of those into a pow more powerful one that is their theology which is philosophy the love of sophia the love of knowledge that's what drives and harmonizes all of the seven sciences and so it's all guided by a specific 
principle that most people don't understand. And so we see those same liberal arts, seven sacred sciences, as they called them in, in prehistory, that was disciplined into those subjects by Enoch, son of Cain. In case people aren't that familiar with the Genesis narrative, there are two Enochs, one being son of Cain, one being from the Seth lineage and son of Jared. Page 49 of your book, you mentioned that uh, Freemason legends record that Adam did not lose control of the memory of the seven sciences and continue to practice them in a limited way after being banished from Eden, but he continued to practice in a righteous manner. So I'm just kind of wondering, what does it look like to practice the seven sacred sciences for Adam practically? Yeah, so everything that Adam would be doing would be in the honor of God. Uh, knowledge is neither good nor evil how it's applied. You would presume that Adam would continue in the ways that he was taught, even though they were sent out of Eden. But certainly by about the third generation, I think it's in the generation of Enosh, that that lineage returns to worshiping God in the same sort of vigor as before. But Adam is not thought of as being a, you know, like, a, like a sinful individual. It's just that there is like this recommitting to uh, God and God's principles in, in, in the Sethian line. So he would be doing things to do well for himself, his wife, his children. He would be doing it in a way and in a manner that would honor God. He wouldn't be doing it with rituals. He wouldn't be doing it with things that would displease God. The flip side of that is sort of what polytheism did in its beginning, certainly, and continues in many of the religions, that was using the knowledge not to honor God. So if you look at the knowledge is that, and as I said, knowledge is neither good nor evil, but if you look at what the polytheist side through the Gnostics, and this is the Masonic account, did with the knowledge is, is they decided to honor a pantheon of gods as opposed to the God of the Bible. Now, depending on which side of the fence you're on, that's either good or it's bad. But what they also did was they wanted to lead people away from God as one of their major principles. The next thing they wanted to do is they wanted to degrade God and slander God. And then the fourth thing that they wanted to do was is they wanted to dismiss God completely if they could. That remains as part of the theology or the philosophy of the sciences today. And if you look at what's done in university, that's what they do. It's the approach to the knowledge. And then within polytheism, you have this dualism that is not only macro as is good versus evil, that's perpetual as in their God against the God of the Bible, but within the belief system, there's dualism as well. You have good versus evil there. You have white magic and black magic. You have good witches and evil witches. You have good giants and bad giants. You have all of that all the way through. And Within that belief system, the white hats, as they might also call them, um, are trying to look after humankind in a, in a manner that isn't destructive to them, but the dark ones want to eliminate them. And again, that's an interesting concept, but at the end of the day, from a Christian monotheist perspective, they're still worshiping a pantheon of gods, no matter whether they have a white hat on or a black hat. Yeah, that's kind of two 
two sides of the same coin there, isn't it? The the white hat and the, the black hat. It is. It directionally wants to do the same thing. Yeah. Man, what you're saying about um, liberal arts colleges, you know, that's just really, I, I went to a public state university. We know, I mean, as believers that, yeah, like the public universities have just been getting like out of control in recent years, but that just, yeah, that just puts it in a new light of like, oh, wow, that was even back to the Old Testament. That was what these people were trying to, glorifying philosophy and glorifying just like removing God from the conversation. And in science, you're allowed to talk about anything except for God creating anything. And Yeah. And evolution is just designed to lead people away from God. They'll discard that when they're ready in the end time, because that's just a, a tactic that they're using to lead people away from God. If you look at what's going on in universities, they have their imagery of their belief system everywhere. So all the, you know, some of the newer universities that are being built, they may not have the same type of architecture, but the traditional architecture, it's got Roman architecture, Egyptian architecture, Greek architecture, Babylonian architecture. The language that's used within the sciences tend to be uh, using language that goes back both directly and through etymology back to the gods. Uh, you have a system that is created in degrees which is part of the secret society, mystery religion. So the mystery religion of old, third degree, uh, Masonic York, right? Third degree, Scottish, right? 33rd degree. That's first level of adept. So as you climb the knowledge level of the knowledge cult in those types of settings, you are earning degrees that's representative of their, their belief system. And when you graduate and throughout you have all of these different things that are going on, including gowns and rituals and things like that, they're not the secret rituals. They're not this, you know, like the sacrifice rituals. And what also grew up, though, in the, in the mystery schools is this, is that that was the origination to the secret societies, that to develop specific aspects, they developed organizations within the mystery schools to specifically develop that. And that's what you see on a lower level uh, throughout the university, whether it's a beta house or whatever organization that you're going to be initiated into, because it's an initiated religion. Like it just burgeons. I won't go forever on the university system. I'm not here to knock it down. I'm just saying that people should have their eyes open as to what they're uh, being involved on. Take the knowledge, but use your critical analysis to understand and filter that information. Well, see, and Gary, you know, this is something that I'll, I'll lament uh, in a lot of ways because I, I left academia for a lot of the reasons that you're pointing out. Because I, I watched, just on a philosophical basis, I watched postmodernism turn the classical traditions on their head. And those classical traditions had for centuries been married to Judeo-Christian tradition. The church fathers kind of took what, because they had been trained in the classical liberal, liberal arts, that's how they were, in a lot of ways, that's how they were able to philosophically duel and match, and in some, in many cases, defeat the pagan polemics that were riding against them. As a historian, I'm seeing that they're putting these seven sciences back on track, you know, or in, in, an, in an attempt to, but over the last 50, 50, 60, 70 years in Western schools, this postmodernism that is completely bereft of, of, I think how you put it was logical and critical analysis. It's it's completely bereft of that. Everything is relative, subjective. There are no objective standards. There are no logical standards. Uh, and it's just complete chaos. It is. And it's, an, and it's the sort of the classic ear, earmarks of an interpretive approach. 
so that you can reimagine, redefine anything in the way that you want. And that's the, that's the classic approach to not only secret societies, but to polytheist religions, that you have to be an adept to understand the information that they're communicating. You may understand the superficial part, or if it's in a, a, an occult writing, you may understand it as a fairy tale that's got a very interesting story, but you have no idea what's going on unless you know what the allegories are and what the true meaning that they're trying to communicate. Yeah, very much so. And again, it was just, it was tragic because I had a lot of godsend mentors, you know, that were godly individuals. It's, I was talking with a, a friend of mine earlier today. It's a miracle. It really is a godsend miracle that I, that I went through that system, you know, not being converted to postmodernism. Yeah, when I started graduate school, I was fortunate enough to have one professor that said, here, read this. And it was a, it was a critique of postmodernism, which of course, is, I think as you accurately illustrate, is really an extension of these older mystery traditions because there's this hermeneutic that's built into it. Yeah, I really found interesting, and uh, I'm just going to sort of come back to what you had mentioned about uh, the education system that was in the early church. They utilized the sciences, but also utilized it for their own critical analysis and how to talk the language and also to be able to argue properly from their perspective versus the polytheist perspective. That always reminds me of an underappreciated sort of narrative in the Bible about Moses, who is adopted into the pharaohs and therefore as being thought to be of a royal bloodline would be initiated from childhood as the purebloods were and are and would have been educated at Heliopolis and would have been an adept in all of the mysteries and took all of those oaths. Well, what that permitted Moses to do once he had been converted back to, to his roots, he was able to talk in the language of the priests when he went back. And so there was no misunderstandings on everything that he did and what he was communicating, and it scared the socks off of them because they were afraid that he might be able to also back that up. And so much so to the reality of that is that you get this sort of crazy little verse in the book of Jude where Michael is sent to retrieve Moses's body because Satan is trying to take the body with him. And that's because Satan had legal rights to do so because Moses would have sworn oaths to their gods and to him in particular uh, as an adept. And he was just claiming what he had been rightly owed, just as the Bible says that don't take oaths because you're going to be held accountable because it's binding. The only good thing about the whole the whole story is, is that, you know, God trumps it because he says, no, this was, this was done for my purposes and I'm going to trump that. So God can trump anything, but it goes to the veracity of this knowledge. It goes to the veracity of the belief system and to the veracity that we ought to take it into consideration when we look at new age, we look at secular education, we look at everything that we're immersed in today, that all of that is that same old system and being used in the same way to accomplish those four goals that the seven sacred sciences were developed for.
crazy after having had your eyes open to this stuff that we're talking about and then going back through the Bible because I did that as well. You know, like, oh, how did I miss this part in Genesis 6? Like, what else did I miss? You know, and coming across verses like that when it's like, oh, when God says not to take oaths, it's because there's actually a really good meaning or like a good reason. It's not just God is making up these arbitrary rules. Our relationship with sin as well, you know, it's like these aren't rules that just exist so that God can tell us not to have fun. It's like, no, it's because this this gives legal rights to this other side that exists. It's very real. Exactly. And, you know, one of the reasons why people don't know anything about Genesis 6 is that the church, Protestant or Catholic, doesn't teach prehistory properly. In fact, they're told not to. They're not taught extensively about prehistory in seminary schools, and they're told also not to teach prophecy. And I get it from a superficial reason is that you can be on quite thin ice and you don't want to get things wrong. You don't want to sound like a lunatic, but you can't ignore that amount of the Bible that is complete context for everything that happens right through our history and what will happen and just say, we're not going to teach it. They're not preparing their flocks properly if we are getting closer to the end time. And I think there's a good chance we might be in the fig tree generation when we look at the geopolitics that are going out there today. Yeah, Gary, I'm in a lot of cases, well, it's not, I mean, statistically, it's not even debatable that biblical literacy in general is just sort of, it's just sort of taint. If people are exposed to the Bible in most churches, it's, it's a sort of Jesus is a lap coach approach and Christianity has been sort of redacted to this kind of morally therapeutic deism. It's, it's, where it doesn't even resemble what traditional Christianity is. And so getting that pendulum to swing back, just getting people to, to read their Bible so that they can ask questions like, what is this weird Genesis 6 stuff? Why are the Hebrews during the conquest killing all these people down to the last man, woman, and child in some of these cities? Because a lot of those passages are obscured simply because those questions aren't asked, and they're, not, they're certainly not asked in seminary, as you well pointed out. A lot of ministers, they're trained to avoid first half of Genesis and, and all of Revelation. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly it. And there's nothing wrong with teaching, and, and I endorse it, teaching all of the good principles of Christianity. But I don't think it should be taught without the whole context of, of the history and, 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 and the future, because it's, it's just you just can't really separate it. I know it only takes faith, but... If we are in the end time, or for people that would be living in the end time down the road, even the elect is going to be deceived if that were possible. So that means we need to understand everything so that we that we don't become become deceived. And one of the things I found very interesting about you know people contacting me, they would say things like, "For the first time, I understand the Old Testament. For the first time, the Old Testament makes sense. For the first time, the story becomes." so much more alive because I understand the context of what's actually going on there. And that's a shame. Uh, they, you know, that ought not to be the case that people don't want to read the Old Testament because it's too boring. The thing is, it's got all the information that we really need to understand things the way that we need to understand them. And it actually you know, strengthens your faith, or at least it did for me. So uh, I find it uh, seemed to be applicable as one of the signs for the times is is how do you bring about the end time is you have to prepare a specific generation for this to happen and they've been working at at it very very hard yeah it's it kind of reminds me of like the movie national treasure when he has this like artifact in his attic or something and then it makes this whole 
history of the United States like come to life when normally it's just kind of like this dead text, you know, the constitution. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good analogy. That's just what I thought of. So. Well, well, sure it is because it makes you start to ask why were so many Masons involved in the writing of the constitution and the founding of the country? Other than that, they're the, the nobility, they're the rich. What else is going on? Who are they actually? And what is the belief system that they're trying to protect? They're not really trying to protect Christians. They're trying to protect their belief system. So they're not going to be persecuted from, from the Roman church. And then that starts to say, okay, well, that seems like that's kind of a larger organization. Are they anywhere else? And it just starts to make you look at the world completely different. So what they do, do a good job on is they create these great stories to get you interested in the things that they want you to be interested in about their belief and their vision of history. But unless you go further, you're not really going to understand what they're really up to. One thing that I think would be really great is, Gary, if we could have you and Dr. Judd essentially do a tag team match against the Sethite view, would you guys mind tag teaming just beating up that view of the Nephilim in Genesis 6? Sure. Do you want me to start or? Yeah, you, you're the guest, Gary. You go, you go first. I, I mean, I, I'd be you know interested in your points of view as well, so... I think that the Sethite view is something that is more easily accepted that these are the sons of God, right? Because you don't have to deal with this whole, uh, you know, this this thing that's in your head, this cognizant dissonance that just says, this can't be. It's too crazy. I mean, I know that's what I thought when I first read it. But, you know, when we look at who the sons of God are, these, these are individuals that created a giant, right? This is a super being. Humans mating with humans aren't really going to create a super being, even if you buy into the new man concept of the Nazis of what they were trying to do to create a superhuman. Suppose there's maybe some scientific things in there, but again, people will say that, well, they're not really giants. It's exaggerated, even though you take Nephilim, Nephil, uh, as being the singular back to Hebrew, and it means a tribe of giants, right? Um, it can also mean a tyrant and a bully, but it's just more context for for the full meaning of it. And And these giants, uh, were demigods, and they were the ones that were talked about in polytheism as being the offspring of the gods and a human female. So it's the same story being told elsewhere. You have this understanding that the sons of God have to be humans, as opposed to the Old Testament doesn't really say that. Old Testament, if you look for sons of God in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and particularly 38, 4 through 7, you've got the sons of God at creation with the stars, and the stars are used interchangeably with the sons of God as in that account. You've got stars as the host of heaven. You've got angels as the host of heaven and as stars. Those four terms are used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament for angels. And there are many orders and ranks of angels, but for angels sort of generically. And humans never presented themselves in heaven as they do and as they're required to do in Job 1, 6 or 2, 1. So we've got a significant amount of passages that point to them being fallen angels. Without going outside the Bible, these are 
because I'll, I'll bring it back. These are considered to be watchers, right? The watchers are the four groups around the throne. They would be the Ophanim, the Cherubim, the Seraphim, and the Archangels. The watcher term actually does show up in the Bible. It shows up in Daniel 4, four times, and it goes back to the Hebrew word Ayer, of which Satir comes as a connection to, where that's S-A, which means shaggy, hairy, as in shaggy, hairy, goat, and Satir, Sa'ir, is a hag is a hairy, shaggy, goat god watcher, because Ayer means a watcher, one who is awake, one who watches in the throne of heaven. You've got all of those passages that are pointing towards these as being angelic beings, and watchers in particular, I think seraphim, because I think the imagery fits better, but you also have cherubim, which I think probably also created uh, giants as well. When you go to the other side of the coin, then they'll point to the children of Israel as the sons of God and as the firstborn son of God. Well, clearly they're not the firstborn sons of God. I mean, if you're going to use that term, that's the fault. That's the angels. That would be Adam. This happens way down in history when they're called the firstborn of, of God. Then they'll go to, let's say, the book of Hosea that will talk about the children of God. But that is a prophecy. That is at the time of the resurrection when we're all going to be raised to be like sons of God, even though we have human fathers, as we're told in the New Testament. And then people will say, well, the sons of God are New Testament sons of God, that they're trying to overlay back onto Genesis 6. Well, that would be fine if we were already sons of God, but we're not sons of God except through the promise of the resurrection when we will be raised to be like sons of God. And then people will go and they'll say, well, angels can't procreate because they're spirit beings and it's, it's forbidden in heaven. Yes, it's forbidden in heaven. It's actually forbidden in the physical world, but they did it anyways. And we know they can take a physical form because let's say in the Genesis 18 and 19 passages, you have two angels in the form of a human interacting physically, just as the angel of the Lord is interacting physically. These are the two angels that go to Sodom to destroy. And so they can take a physical form. And if you're going to have a physical form, a creation for your spirit, an oiketarian that they have to have to physically interact in the physical world, you can pass on your DNA. Uh, and that's how they're going to procreate. It's not the idea that they can't have sex on earth. It's just that it's forbidden and it's illegal. The, the lake of fire is reserved for them and other ones who created crimes against humanity and against creation. Uh, and a few other people that we won't go into because we're talking about the sons of God that will burn forever for those crimes and probably based on the oaths that they swore on Mount Hermon that uh, would be associated with uh, part of that accountability. But you get the idea that they swore an oath on Mount Hermon. That's just sort of a first sort of setting on all of the reasons why we need to understand the Bible as it's written and how it accounts for the giants after the flood, not necessarily the ones from before the flood. Uh, but we do get giants after the flood. You know, that word Rapha uh, is used in the Old Testament 25 times for giant, just as the Anakim are giants. Those are Raphaim. They're not Nephilim, as the embellished part of the report talks about. You also have Raphaim that shows up twice in the Bible, translated directly as in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants and Genesis 15 amongst the uh, mighty 10 that are occupying the land that is being promised to Abraham at that time. We get all of these accounts of these giants and these tribes after the flood that do not have a patriarch in the table of nations. 
And it's the patriarchs that are Raphaim that aren't put in the table of nations. One quick example would be Arba is the patriarch, as the book of Joshua talks about, for the Anakim. He does not show up in, in the uh, table of nations. And you've got nine tribes of Canaanites who don't have a patriarch. They're named after Raphaim. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, the, what addendum I would offer is, you know, I'm, one of the things I always say, Gary, is context is theology is context. Understanding something about the audience, you know, the ancient audience, understanding the culture, and certainly understanding something about the language, even if you don't master it. We've got all these tools now that you can you can just access almost instantly. It will help you, you know, ferret out a lot of a lot of this stuff. But in the case of the sons of God, and let's say the disparagement of the more supernatural interpretation, well, that's what the language says. The Sethi theory is a prime example of continuing to brutalize the words that the Hebrews themselves were using to talk about these entities. And, and a, an acute case of presentism and misunderstanding uh, of the ancient audience. And so, like, phrases and words that you bring up, like, like sons of God, anytime that ever shows up in the Hebrew Bible, well, they're talking about angels. Well, by comparison, if that's the context there, then it's likely that it's certainly because you've got all kinds of high strangeness and menaces taking place. It just it seems logical on top of just letting the word say what it says. The same thing for Nephilim. One of the, I think one of the interesting fields of study within the last several decades has been to do a comparative linguistic analysis and a lot you know several scholars written papers on this comparing some of these words to other semitic languages at the time like aramaic the, the word is you know nephilim is very it's clearly related to nephilim both of those mean giant and you brought up the word one of the words that that's used in the hebrew bible for angel which is year and it's related to the aramaic word it's basically pronounced the same way. Irim is plural in Hebrew. Irin is plural in Aramaic. And you've got that connotation there. But in Aramaic, it also means fortified camp or city, which is interesting because of the role that the watchers play in sort of you know, steering the culture like they do. And if there was any sort of obfuscation or, or, or muddying of the issue left, then walk it back through the Septuagint. These guys were not the later Masoretic stuff, you know, that there's, that's problematic in and of itself. But you've got an earlier, genuinely Second Temple piece of literature, a translation by a group of rabbis who are uniquely qualified to not only understand the Hebrew tradition that they come out of, but they're Alexandrian Jews. They understand the Hellenistic world. So they, they knew the Greek words and idioms. In the case of giant, it's very clear what they were saying by the translation that they made into Greek, gigantes. I mean, you can't get around any of that. Taking all of this as a whole, not just the sons of God, but words like Nephilim, Irim, if people would just let the words say what they're saying and dig through a lot of the bad translations that we hear, you know, I'm the first to admit, and I'm sure you are too, that it, it takes some digging, but it's there if you work for it. And so I, I think in my, my scholarly opinion, I think the Sethite interpretation is dead on a rob. Yeah, but it's held by most Christians. What I try and do is sort of present things to people in a way that I'll connect a lot of dots, but we can sort of back it up. If people in your audience, if they want to 
go to my website to the genesis six conspiracy.com. That's the number six conspiracy.com and go to the media page where it says contact Gary for an interview. That's my email. If you want to document on how we know the sons of God are angels, I'll send that to you at no charge. If you want to document on how we know they're not Sethites or humans, I have another argument that sort of walks through that all biblically. Uh, for people and give you all the verses on that. I did a debate with somebody who called giants the tyranny of giants in the English language. And he uh, uh, it was not one of your more professional debates, even though that was what I was promised. But one of the things he asserted was this tyranny was is that giant doesn't come from the word giant in any other language. It comes from gigantic that you were f- referring to in part of the, of the gigantes and that it means earthborn. And he's partly right on that. It's half right. But the root word for gigantes, which gigantic comes from, is gigas. And that's the singular version for, for giant. And then if you, you know, if you got an A behind a G in Greek, that sort of hard G, not clinically the G sound that we use, but a, a harder G sound. But if there's an I or an E following it, you get the Y sound to it, and it goes to giantes. Um, and then you have the plural aspect of an A-S and an E-S and how you pronounce that as well. People just, you got to dig a little bit deeper when somebody says, oh, you can't believe in giants because it comes from earthborn. Well, that's part of the meaning. And gigas is the root word for the gigantes, which were these hundred, hundred-handed giants created by Kronos and Ge- Gaia in Greek history. And they were monstrous beings. And one of them was named Gyges, which is rooted in Gygus. And you see spellings of that with that Y sound or that G sound as Gyes or Gyges as it comes down through writings in things like Hesiod and Theogony. And uh, uh, and I think even in Homer, you've got a couple of variations of that as well. Yeah, again, it's an example of, of just letting the words say what they say. And the problem problem is we have so many sterilized translations materialized translations you know i mean i I grew up with them you know i I was exposed to the same ones but you know it was it was was a revelation to me to be exposed to to greek and hebrew i mean it just everything just popped to life and the the good thing it does the good thing now like both of us have, have, have pointed out is that there are so many resources it's really it does take some digging, but it's less so than having to go to the library and actually find these sources for yourself. I mean, you're really just kind of a search, a Google search away from it. Certainly makes it easier if you want to dig a little deeper, for sure. interject a couple of questions that were raised in um, Dr. Heiser's Divine Council worldview about 
the the Sethite view from someone who recently adopted this view um, and had been wrestling with it for it sounds like a couple of years. And it's so two things. One is he talks about how he says basically this guy says that context never talks about fallen angels prior to Genesis six. You could touch on that. And then he also says God was grieved with man and the judgment was the flood, but he didn't say anything about being grieved with angels. And he thinks that uh, if God would have been grieved by fallen angels, that it would be mentioned in the text. Well, I think a couple things on that is we have Satan who is working uh, to deceive Adam and Eve through the Nahash, the serpent, uh, well before Genesis 6. And that you have Cain who is, you know, who rebels and follows a completely sort of different belief system and is developing some of these crazy knowledges that we've been talked about. And we get downstream with the, with the, the lineage of Lamech, you get Nama, Tubal, Cain, Jubal, and Jubal, and they're all patriarchs of, of Gnosticism. But just that aspect about Satan being called Satan as an adversary, and he's the one that is going to be around uh, the Eden area. And we know he walked in Eden because Ezekiel 28 tells us that that cherubim as one of his many forms, one of his many attributes, one of his many titles was in Eden. I'm not convinced he's the one who actually deceived Eve because it's the Nahash that received all of the punishment. So I'm thinking he either entered into him or he coached them to do it. It's another rabbit hole story about the Nahash. You have this rebellion and who is he leading? It just, it, it infers that there is people that are following those angels and that you also then have to ask, then, who is guiding Cain? What is the background to that information uh, with Cain? When you get up to Genesis 6, yeah, you see a physical violation. I would call that the second revenge, because now they're going to create a demigod race to try and destroy humankind so that we can't be resurrected and to be like gods. And so that, again, would infer that this has been a schema that's been going on since the creation of Adam. When we get that word grievous, now this is a New Testament term. This is the language that is going to be spoken of about the conversation at Sodom, um, where you've got people who recognize these angels as being human, and these are the same sins that have been that are being compared to to before the flood and the sins of the angels before the flood in Jude one six and two Peter two four and that this conversation is about having sex with this strange flesh and I'm sorry it doesn't say grievous there but the grievous part is talked about in Genesis thirteen and in Genesis uh, eighteen and Genesis nineteen in the sins these grievous sins that go all the way up to heaven, but it's that connection back to the sins of the angels when they left their habitation. So the question gets to be is when did they leave that habitation? What we do know is angels are created before creation; they're there at the at the creation. So you have this big sort of gap, however you want to measure that when this rebellion would have taken place. And this rebellion takes place when Satan is doing widespread trade around whatever realms you want to talk about, as Ezekiel talks about. And in Isaiah 14, he wants to raise his throne to be in heaven. 
And so he's thrown down from heaven at whatever point in time that that happens. But all of that is sort of reflecting a period of rebellion, certainly before Genesis 6, at least by Genesis 2. So the question is, is which has now become speculative, is, is how many rebelled and when and how far back did that go? I have something to add to that, Gary, and maybe you looked into this or not. I think there's a good case to be made for not even going, you don't even have to go two verses into Genesis chapter one before you see this sort of contention because the where the passage goes into um, his spirit hovered over the waters of the deep. Now, waters and seas were an ancient symbol for chaos. What's interesting in that passage to me is, is when it comes to the void and the, the earth was void and without form. That's Tohon and Bohon in, in Hebrew. Tohon is a cognate and morphologically similar. In fact, it is derived from the Akkadian Sumerian Tiamat, which is, of course, the chaos dragon in Mesopotamian mythology. I think potentially the answer to that question is how many rebellions were there? Maybe that the first contention, now whether this is Satan or not, I think there's a good case to be made that we're dealing with not just some innocuous concept, but there, in fact, may be a, a contentious intelligence there that God is contending with. He's placing order over chaos. And you can look at that verse as it can be translated as, you know, out of Hebrew as became or was, form and voidless. That's, that's they're both there in the meanings. And Void and formless, I usually pronounce them incorrectly, but I say to who and boohoo quickly and kind of leave off the M a lot of times, but they imply destruction that has happened. Something has ruined the earth. And you get that same sort of wording that comes in in the book of Isaiah, that God didn't create everything in vain, that he created it to, to, to live in. It goes back to the same Hebrew, Hebrew words. So it's odd that people think that God created something in chaos, right? Oh, uh, right. So why wouldn't he just do it complete? Because he can do anything that he wants to do. He's he's omnipotent. And what's also interesting is in Psalms 104, which has good details for the creation as well, isn't necessarily quite in the same order because it's not trying to reduplicate that, but it's talking about the creation of angels in Psalms 104. And then when it gets to the part about his, about the Holy Spirit, it says when uh, he sends his Holy Spirit, things are renewed. Uh, actually, the word is spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit by by understanding what the Spirit is. And so, the earth is renewed. And in Genesis 1-1-2, you have the Holy Spirit hovering over this place that has no form and is is void. And it's like it became void, and now the Holy Spirit has been sent to renew the earth. And I know people don't want to look at that as being a good location for the angelic rebellion and the power that they have that would have destroyed the old world, but it certainly matches up with uh, a nice verse in, in the in the book of Peter that I won't go into today because I want to finish on where I'm at. It's about the earth that was in water and now is in water. But if you were having a destruction back at the time of the angelic rebellion that would be backdated to before Genesis 1-2, that caused the earth to become destroyed, everything sort of makes sense. And it's not in conflict with Exodus 20, where it says the earth was created in six days, the heavens and the earth, because heaven, as it's defined in Hebrew, can mean the firmament, 
It can mean outside the firmament for the rest of the universe, or it can mean the dimension where, where God lives. And heaven shows up in Genesis 1 with a separation of the waters to take away the chaos that could be translated as the firmament, which is the sun and everything in, however far that distance might be. I just think there's a better fit for it back then, but I'm comfortable with that rebellion anytime. But what we do know is it wasn't this convenient, we'll say scapegoat, because I don't want to confuse it with Azazel out of the book of Enoch within the hash, as being the one who did all on its own the bringing down of Eve. That just makes no sense. Because why would it? If there wasn't a, a rebellious pantheon that the Nahash beings were following, why would they be even wanting to do that? For what would be the purpose? It makes no sense. Yeah, it's you're clear, clearly looking at a, a an orchestrated coup. I mean, this was... It almost sets the pace for what happens on, well, it does set the pace for what happens on Mount Hermon in, in later chapters. Yeah, it does. Gary, in your book, we talk about the seven sacred sciences and how Cain passed them on to, uh, we're going to say the evil evil Enoch to make the distinction there. And it, on page 54, you say, consider the list of sinister sacraments that Enoch introduced. From astronomy, he created astrology and sun worship. Enoch and his counterparts and descendants became idolaters, worshiping other gods rather than the true God of the universe. Enoch implemented pagan rituals, ceremonies, and rites with this new repulsive religion. The knowledge could then only be passed on to initiates, the selected guardians of the knowledge that was then cloaked in mysteries and secrets. When I read that, what popped in my mind is like, so is evil Enoch, is he the father of secret societies? Well, yeah, he would be the patriarch, the grand patriarch. So, And he's recognized as such by uh, the ancient royal masons. Um, he's the one who uh, creates the whole knowledge cult. He creates the rituals. He creates the mystery schools and the courses that, that are going to be taught. And this is for the new elite. And this knowledge is the knowledge that will merge with the fallen angels. So you get this conversion with the creation of the giants and this Nephilim world order before the flood that has this mystical religion that develops the knowledge. And it's only for the elite. It's not for the Sethites. It's not for the non-humans. It's only for the giant class and the Cainite class that are intermarrying with the giants. And so they're going to do it through these secret mystical initiatory religions and societies where they're going to develop the knowledge and, and educate the upper class and control the complete society. It's exactly what we see today for the most part. I'm just, I'm trying to, in my mind, kind of tie, make connections and tie things together. What you guys were just talking about brought me to a question that I had about who the sixth day race of people are. You mentioned this in your book that there could have been a, a race of people. Um, what you guys are talking about is even before that, that there was a rebellion. Does that then mean that there were civilizations on the earth before Genesis, was it Genesis 1-2? Is that the verse that you guys were talking about? And that there was a rebellion then and that God in judgment destroyed the earth? 
well, he may have done that, but I think it was more f- just from the war that broke out. Okay. So the waters weren't judgment. It was just chaos. Yeah. So you can basically say destroyed down to the foundations of the earth and that the water collapsed back down into the earth, which created the chaos. That's what in, in the book of Peter is talking about the earth that was in water and then was out of water. And the one that's reserved for judgment in the end time by fire. That's not the destruction of the flood because it says in that passage, that's when the earth perished. Well, the earth didn't perish. Only what was on the land perished. Not everything that was in the sea perished, right? And Noah and the the seven others survived. The whole thing didn't perish. It's talking about a destruction that will was a similar type of destruction that is coming in the end time, a destruction by fire. So this earth that was in the water, that was then out of the water, is talking about the collapsing of the water in, and then in the renewal of the earth, when the Holy Spirit is uh, sent in, you know, following this line of thought, um, is when those waters are separated again, that creates the firmament, that creates the ability to create life underneath it. And, and when we talk about the people in day six, I'm, I'm not dogmatic on the, uh, what I call the renewal of the earth, other people call gap theory, but on the day six, I'm a little bit more dogmatic on that. And one of the things that I don't believe is that the Bible is in contradiction. What I mean by that is, is if I line up the order of creation in Genesis 1 and the order of creation in Genesis 2, it doesn't really line up. If I look at the details in there, they're irreconcilable. They're just too many differences. So the only way I can get there and say that, and it all starts to answer a whole bunch of other questions, is that they have to be two different creations. And at some point in time, after day seven, and we're not sure when, it doesn't say day eight, but at some time after Adam is created in singular versus humans being created in day six in plural and told to multiply, but Adam is told to stay. And he's not going to be told to multiply till after Eve is created at some point in time and after they're out of ostracized out of Eden. Uh, and that's just the beginning of, of the differences that are in there. And it's not that there's more details being added on in Genesis 2. They're just irreconcilable. But it starts to answer the question is, is who did Cain meet? Well, a lot of people say, well, it's going to be one of, you know, one of his sisters, right? In, in Nod, because he went to Nod and he built a city. Well, a city for who? And where did he get his wife from? Well, it's uh, from one of the sisters. But the problem with that is, is that Adam didn't have any more children until after Seth was 130 years old. And then daughters and more sons were born. So Seth, seemingly by the chronology laid out, is born after Cain leaves. So how is that possible? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. It sounds like we're talking about an old earth as opposed to an earth that's what, I don't know, somewhere between six and 10,000 years based on some people's estimation. Dr. Judd, can you weigh in on the age of the earth and archaeological evidence to support an old earth and, and old advanced civilizations and, and, and the like? Yeah, I, this sort of language about the day, the creation within days was, was pretty, pretty well known in the, the ancient Near East. We look at that and translators for centuries translated the word Yom as day. And it does mean day, like Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. But it can also mean epoch or stretch of time. And again, reading sort of walking material science back through the Bible, 
you can do that. And I like the way that Gary laid that out. I, as he was talking, I, I was thinking about all the, the physical anthropology classes that I had to take in graduate school. You're studying the human fossil record, but it's, or I should say the hominid fossil record, but it's, it's presented to you in completely evolutionary, at least macroevolutionary kind of backdrop. The question that I kept asking was, well, the morphological differences in bone structure, why can't we account the, because, you know, beyond a certain point, dating by biological remains becomes increasingly difficult. And that's essentially what carbon-14 does. You've got about, you got a window of about 10 or 12,000 years to work with. that, And then the methods for dating become increasingly more exotic, you know, like potassium argon. But I say all that just to say that we've got this material record in, in, let's say, in the archaeological record of all of these skeletal remains, because that's typically what survives, you know, at that point, particularly if you're talking about an arid region. And some of these things have been dated using various methods that were honed in geology and some of the biological sciences, but also by artifact typology. Some of these hominids, these bipedal individuals, their lineages go back millions of years. And what always struck me about Genesis was that, well, Eden is clearly presented as a, a country, a region. The garden is actually set in the eastern portion of it. And if you scour the text, nowhere does it do that Adam was the first person. He's, he's the first human in the messianic line. You know, there's this, well, it's stronger than subtext. It's not subtext. It's there that there's this issue of being set apart and holy, set up Eden is set apart, the Garden of Eden is set apart, Adam is set apart for that messianic line. But that doesn't mean that there weren't other intelligent bi- bipedal, just generally, let's call them hominids, because that would, that's the language in physical anthropology, uh, that there were these, uh, but clearly we know that that was the case because some of these older hominids, even in more close, let's say more closely biologically related individuals like the Neanderthals, Clearly, we're intelligent. Their cranial capacity, on average, is larger than modern humans. So there are clearly these these other societies of varying degrees of sophistication that existed outside, not just the, the Garden of Eden, but the region of Eden. To me, I, I have no problem with that. You know, I don't see that as as a theological impingement or any other sort of impingement historical or, or anthropological or archaeological against the narrative that's laid out there again it's just a matter of letting letting the narrative say what it says exactly and one of the things i would add on to that is that the, where six thousand years comes from is the sort of the genealogies that we use to go back to adam and if that is a different creation then you've got another period of a time we don't know, you know, after the the seven days of creation. What's also interesting in Genesis 2, starting at about verse 4, you get the word Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, introduced. And in Genesis 1, it's just Elohim for God. You don't get both. And I'm, I found it interesting that you're talking about, because I agree with it 100% that that is the start of the Magiatic line, which would be the Yahweh of the Elohim, the, the great I am of, of the fire who is going to become Jesus at some point in time, he is now involved on that special commission where uh, life has been breathed into Adam. Again, completely different kind of creation that's what, what's going on in, in, in day six. And another point is, is in that 
passage in Second Peter that I was talking about earlier with the earth that's reserved for fire and the earth that was in water and is out of water. It describes that period of time as it's talking about um, in the beginning as a day is like a thousand years. And so when it's talking about the end time, you have to be sort of patient. And again, that's an allegory. I get that. Um, but it means that it's more than a day when, it's, when we're talking about in God's frame of reference. You've got at least, you know, from day six to day seven, you've got uh, a, a you know, couple of thousand years there. And then we don't know if there's a separate creation, how long that happens before that. So you've got a lot of different things to keep in mind, but don't let people get you trapped on the genealogy. Because it doesn't say anywhere the earth is 6,000 years old. It's just an assumption based on one way of trying to understand the Bible that may or may not hold water. And I think that the world is older. I just don't know how much older. Um, And I neither rely on science when they're talking about great ages, or nor do I want to eliminate that as well when I understand that you could easily translate Genesis 1 in two different ways that creates this great older age. And for people, if you're interested, and I'll just throw this out, I have a great document on Genesis 6, uh, not Genesis 6, on Genesis 2, the differences between day 6 and Genesis 2. So if people want to get a hold of me, I'll walk you through the passages. And also I have a, a, a pretty good layout on what I call the renewal of the earth or the gap theory a document on that as well that sort of gives you the important words and lays it out how you can translate it two different ways and you can decide what you want. So if you want that document, get a hold of me uh, at the genesis6conspiracy.com. Awesome. Something I've been kind of looking for is basically like Genesis 6 apologetics or evangelism. I don't know. Maybe it's a both and situation, but I'm newer to this stuff. And so I'm kind of one of the first people in my family and in my friend group to get into this. And they all think I'm weird, definitely. And I've tried with some of my closer friends bringing up some of it like, oh, like, why don't you look into it more? You know, because these are like churchgoers. I've I've had a few of them say to me, well, really just one, but it was like a, a misquote of another Bible verse about beware of adding to the text. Or I think he was referencing in Revelation, it says like not to add any or take away from the text, you know. But anyway, basically calling these subjects like false prophecy, which it's not prophecy either, but like a false, um, it was like a Christian friend who was, who was calling me out for saying, for like adding to scripture or for falsely representing stuff that was going on. And I didn't even know what to say. I mean, you know, I was like, that's so wrong, you know, and also I didn't just make this stuff up. But anyway, I was just kind of tripped up. Do you have any like words of advice on like how to gently like lead Christians to to the truth with this stuff? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of times Christians are harder on Christians than non-Christians are on Christians. We ought to be looking at trying to unite Christians and being able to agree and disagree. And it's okay to do that. But that is one of the tactics to sort of shut the argument down is saying that you're adding to scripture. But if you're just referencing scripture and it has perfect sort of synergy and context and there's no manipulation, you're not adding, you're just putting scripture together. And that's why we want to be able to do that. And that's why it's important to communicate to people where this information is and and start putting that information together. And then a lot of other people will say, well, you shouldn't go back to the original Greek and the Hebrew because 
the King James Version was an inspired translation, and you don't need to go any any further. Well, um, I'm a contrarian, so I, I do like to go back to Greek and Hebrew. I like to verify things for myself on all things that I research. And, you know, those words have multiple meanings. Some of them are nuanced. Some of them are completely different. And so if you do do that, and I encourage it, uh, just make sure that what you're trying to take out of that isn't changing the verse in a way that is inconsistent in the sentence, inconsistent in the verse, inconsistent in the narrative, and doesn't conflict with any other passages in the Bible. I know that's a high standard, but you want to be careful. But I do encourage people to look at the greater meanings because the English language, as it's written for the Old and the New Testament coming from the Greek, does not hold the full context of the meaning. And you can learn so much more. I mean, Dr. Judd was talking about going back to the original language just sort of lit things up. It does because it starts to help you understand other passages you may not have even looked at, but do apply some discipline. But the thing is, is that what I, what I tend to do, you know, and I found it very, very surprising is I'll go back with this and I'll go back with that and I'll go back with that. And sometimes I might give them too much because they're still going to, if they're not ready to hear the argument, they're not going to hear the argument. But I, I try now to be more, I'll give you some, if you'd like more, let me know. I'll provide you some more. But make sure you can make that argument scripturally because they know a lot of people, they have it in their head. They just don't have it on their fingertips as to what the exact verse and chapter was. So try and just make that a little bit more crystal clear to them and tell them, hey, I can get back to you with the verses if you want. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, most people that follow my work know how near and dear to my heart Caesarea Philippi Penaeus is. Because I'll excavate the site and I wrote my dissertation on it. But that's a great place to start is because Jesus picks this location, this region, for all these specific meanings and, and layers of meaning that we talked about in this program and I've talked about on any number of programs. And so if these things were on the minds of Jesus and the disciples, then we should at least that should at least give us pause to, you know, consider that there's deeper meaning here. When Jesus is using words like ecclesia, assembly, to talk about the establishment of the church while he's at Aeneas, while he's at the foot of Mount Hermon, where all this stuff took place in, in Genesis 6. And when he uses a word like that, he's not just hearkening back to a community or even the Athenian assembly uh, or the old ancient Greek uh, democratic learning bodies. There's also the idiom of the assembly of the gods, like the uh, Titans and the Olympians talking about the sons of God a minute ago within the divine council worldview. Jesus is not just establishing the body of Christ, the church, but he's sweeping away the, this old order of fallen gods and restoring us through salvation and faith as sons of God. These places that have been occupied by these angels that chose to go against Yahweh. When I came across that, it was such. It was not just a revelation, but it was it was overwhelming and in, in its beauty and just the the love and thought that went in, into all this. It, tra- it transcends our finite existence. Yeah, when you put it that way, it is kind of like romantic, right? Because it's it's not random. It's it's very personal. Yeah, it's a great sort of discernment to sort of grasp what what you're talking about there, and that is that. You know, the place as home of the Balim, as we understand the pantheon of gods, for the most part, that's given to us in the Bible. And, you know, Baal was the son of El. And so both before and after the flood, whether or not you're talking about a parent god or an offspring god, that's the assembly of the gods. 
And if there's a great sort of location for the assembly of the gods that's talked about in the Ugaritic texts as well, and in all, not all, but most cultures around the world, whether it's Nippur or wherever else, they have this assembly of, of the gods. Well, and, the, and the, the Sumerians themselves believed that it was Malhermit. Yeah, so it, it's, it sort of comes together. And, uh, you know, you look at what you're talking about, the assembly of the gods, and also you're probably referencing Psalm 82, you know, where the gods are the children of the Most High and other reference to angels and gods being the same sort of being and uh, having this assembly that Satan sits above and his congregation, I think that's the Hebrew word Ida there, as opposed to uh, Moad, that's in uh, reference to the assembly of God in Isaiah 14 that Satan was trying to overthrow and set his throne up into. I think that's probably also the location of the council of the gods that are there as well. I talk about this in, in my new book, and I'm in agreement in a number of things here that Dr. Heiser was talking about, that you know, you look at that word and how it changed over time uh, and the pronunciation of Armageddon. I think that's the assembly of the armies at the assembly of the mountain of the gods where Armageddon is actually going to be fought at because uh, Megiddo doesn't have a, have a mountain. There's a plain, but there's not a mountain. And you'll have a plain below Mount Hermon where the temples are that you're talking about and the gateway to Hades is located and the Pan Temple and everything else that you're referencing to where Jesus went to and said, here's where I'm going to build my rock. Here's where my church is going to be built on. I mean, you couldn't get more contrast as to, I'm here for a reason. You've not anticipated what I'm going to do yet. You're going to be part of fulfilling the plan because you're going to crucify me, and I'm going to build my church on that. And that's going to end, be part of the resolution to the angelic rebellion that's going to play out in the end time when I come back. It's just perfect in its symmetry. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I think those are all salient points, Gary. And I think, I think um, that whole region is like an onion. You know, I, I'm working on a new paper right now on the timing of Jesus's arrival at Caesarea Philippi. And it's just this theologically and scholastically, it's just this gift that keeps on giving for people that really want to dig into it. And, and another thing is, it's just not called Mount Hermon, even biblically. It's got many names, right? You know, it's got Shinir and Sirion in the Bible, but the one that I find most interesting is Deuteronomy 4, uh, where it's called Mount Sion, S-I-O-N. And it's a different word than Zion, as you take that back in, into the Hebrew, as you know. When the polytheists are talking about Sion, that's what they're talking about. The Mount Sion, as they try and conflate the two and confuse people, is that mountain. And so when you get into the secret societies, you need to understand how they like to use double entendres and meanings, and they like to draft things in out of the Bible to make it look like they're referencing the Bible, but it's just a cover story. Uh, I think Mount Sion is going to be very, very important as part of the Babylonian religion and then the Antichrist religion when, when he comes to power. And uh, it's just one of those things that I think people need to be aware of. And, you know, the other thing I find so interesting about Mount Hermon these days is that it is the location of the largest UN mission. Uh, and that's there for a reason. I mean, you know, strategically, it's an important place from a military perspective, you know, above the Golan Heights and things, but they're there because that's going to be important when things start to come together. So keep an eye on that area and region. And it's also the home of the of King Og and uh, just close by King Sihon of the, of the Rapi or the Raphaim. 
the UN being located there is highly suspect to me. Absolutely. And and Bashan or Bataan in, in the Ugaritic references means the the land of the serpent. It's it's essentially the same word as Elti and Leviathan in the Hebrew. So there are all these again, this stuff is really just kind of hiding in plain sight. we could have you back because i know this is like a whole episode's worth of other content but i would really love to dive more into like the un meets cern meets the freemasons i feel like that would be really good that would make a a a very good show no doubt about that so we could go we could go pretty deep on that i smell a series gary maybe you could give us a a taste of of all that for these last uh, 15 or 20 minutes well cern's cern's a big topic Right. So, um, and, uh, you know, the first thing I would say, you know, in uh, sort of linking the things together is where does the gateway of the gods go to that's at the base of Mount Hermon? And is that the only portal into where it goes in, in the earth? And the answer is, is it goes into their heaven, which is Sheol or Hades or the other world or to Anwen. And typically in occultic um, belief system is is that and i think this may actually be uh, more accurate than not is hades is not physically in the earth it's in another dimension in the same space it's in another sort of realm and so this is like a portal in their belief system to another realm and portals is a very 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 um, important concept in, in in polytheism so one of the things that CERN is kind of looking at is quantum, the matching up of AI and quantum mechanics. So you're wanting to be able to go with quantum computing into other dimensions, but it doesn't, at least the older technology, I'm not up to where they might be where are today. It's kind of like a rifle shot. So you, it would take forever to search all of these sort of dimensions. So you need AI sort of matched up for that. So the question gets to be, so what are they searching for in another dimension? Well, one of the answers would be they might be searching for the abyss that would be located in another dimension in Hades or the other world so that they can release their offspring parent gods and parent gods of the antediluvian world as well that both created giants. I'm more of a second incursion fan than survival of the giants, even though I don't rule out survival of the giants, uh, that they want to get those gods out of that abyss. The other thing is, is that they're looking for is the divine essence, which is an invisible particle, which is known as the Atman, that works through quantum entanglement through all the different dimensions. So they're working on a few different avenues. You know, even when you get into the sort of ideology of portals, when you get into Gilgal Raphaim, it has like over a hundred different portals there. And that's the wheel of the giants that's uh, uh, at the foot of a Mount Hermon. And it's, a, it's an old religious site as well. And it almost like, looks like a, almost like a mini um, pictures that they have for like Atlanta City. 
you start linking that sort of back to like the Ugaritic texts again, and you have these people, the, the Rapiu, which are healers, they're ghosts, and they're rulers, right? There's three different meanings of Raphaim in Hebrew, 7495, 7496, and 7497. Healer, shade, ghost, spirit, and giant, in, respectively, in, in, in that order. And they go back between these portals, both when they're dead and when they're alive. And uh, those are thought to be, uh, in a lot of uh, schools of thought, to be those travelers that are talked about or the passengers, depending on which English translation that you're reading in, in the book of Ezekiel, for the travelers after the Gog War and just before the second exodus. And that's the Hebrew word abar, which means the Passover. And a few passages like in the book of Job, you've got that connected with death. And so you've got this huge amount of references where you've got a gateway uh, of Hades at the, uh, right beside the Pan Temple, right at the foothill of, right at the foot of Mount Hermon, at the same place that Jesus went to make his statement to them. And you've got the CERN project, even though it's located at another location, is seemingly trying to get into the same location to do things for the end time that previously would not have been able to be done, except when those angels walked amongst us. Was was the Tower of Babel, or what Nimrod was doing there, akin to what CERN is doing now, do you believe? From a speculative basis, I would say yes. It doesn't make sense to me that Nimrod thought he could build a tower tall enough to reach into heaven and to overthrow God if God got out of line again or would bring another flood, as the polytheist versions have it. So Nimrod is one of the most important patriarchs of the ancient Masonic societies. He is the individual who writes the first Masonic constitution after the flood. And it won't be uh, revised again until it's taken over a thousand years later at Heliopolis. And he receives knowledge from a fellow by the name of Hermes, according to the Masonic history. And Hermes finds the two pillars of Lamech, and or Enoch. There's two different versions in there. Uh, basically tell the same story. There's the same lineage, so it doesn't really matter and the same knowledge. But Hermes discovers one of the two pillars, the one that would survive a flood as opposed to the one that would decide uh, survive a destruction by fire because they were planning for both. And it leads him to where the Enochian, language, uh, Enochian knowledge is stored and Enochian information about the religion, because they're essentially the same thing. And they're in 36,525 books stacked in nine vaults on top of each other, buried underneath the Great Pyramid, according to the Masonic legends. Hermes finds the pillar, finds the knowledge, takes it back to Babel. And they build Babel Tower with this knowledge, and he initiates a thousand people into the craft to build Babel City and to build Babel Tower. Now, to get to the point of your question where I'm going with this is, this implies... In their history, he had significant knowledge that they were developing because I think my speculation is that the knowledge before the flood is greater than what we have today, and we're just catching up to that. Uh, and it was knowledge accelerated by the fallen angelic realm, just what I think what we're seeing today as well. We're seeing a helping hand there to develop things that we're probably not quite capable of doing. And so in Hebrew, the word Babel means confusion of languages. But it has a different meaning in other accounts. So there's other accounts of the Tower of Babel. So you get the tower built at Eridu in the Sumerian version. And it's by Enmerakar, who's a Nimrod equivalent in my books. Third generation like Nimrod. And there's an Akkadian 
uh, understanding of it as well, a nation that Nimrod founded or descends out of Nimrod and his progeny. And in the Akkadian language, you get the word Babalu. Some people shorten it right to Babel, but the ILU is a Sumerian or Mesopotamian transliteration of AL or EL for an angel or a god. And Bab means a gateway. And so the Akkadian translation would be a gateway uh, of the gods, so a portal. Portal, we don't know whether that could go into heaven, it could go into the underworld, uh, but it's probably clearly designed for the same goals that, on my speculation here, the same goals that CERN is doing, and that if Nimrod really wanted to enter into heaven, to overthrow heaven, as Satan tried to do, and what Antichrist in Daniel 8, 10, 8 to 10 is going to do, and actually throw down some starry host at the midpoint of the of the last seven years, he would have to be able to go into another dimension to do that. So when you start to look at the logistics of what is being said, he was either a madman that was waving his fist at the skies, or they had developed something that was technologically advanced from the antediluvian society, where they built these great pyramids, not just for burial chambers that were told that they were built for. All of that is is fascinating. So, and something that I've been working on lately is the notion that we may be looking in the wrong time for Nimrod and the Babel event altogether. And again, I, I have yet to flesh this out com- completely, but I just from the work I've done so far, I'm starting to think that we may find that rather than looking in just the later Mesopotamian world, even beginning with the Sumerians, that we may need to look closer to the post-flood, kind of the, the, what would have been like the, the Neolithic period. When you've got these advanced cultures in Mesopotamia, first the Halal and then the Ubayids. And the Ubayids, clearly, I think we could, we could agree that the Tower of Babel, even if it was situated on a tower, was itself. Not, it, we're not just talking about a ziggurat. There's some sort of mechanism some sort of knowledge or technology at work there. Well, it's it's the Ubayid who were the first ziggurat builders in Mesopotamia. And a lot of the settlements in in what became Samaria were first occupied. They were first cities built by the Ubayid. And their culture, from what archaeologists tell us, goes back to the beginning of this Neolithic period, about 7,500 BC. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that did Nimrod actually build the tower or did he renovate the tower? Because if you look at the cities he founded, like Uruk or Erek and other cities, they seem to be antediluvian cities that he, you know, reestablished and renovated, but never probably didn't build. So if you follow that same line of thought, then you could say, well, maybe he, they were building there, but he wasn't actually building the first one. He was just renovating it. It's another possibility as well. Yeah, there's a lot of space to work with there, I think, and and even I, I personally think that the word Babel it works both ways. The Mesopotamian connotation as the gate of gods as a portal it works, and the confusion of language works too. Especially if we're pushing that date back further during the Ubayid period, because it coincides with the the Proindo-European language shift, this mother tongue that linguists have have sort of reverse engineered. And that all goes back to the Transcaucasus region that occupies territory between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And part of that is northeastern Turkey. 
Well, and and here's uh, something that fits in really, really well in terms of the line of thought. There's that term that is in the book of Ecclesiastics, nothing is new under the sun, what has been will be again. So if what Nimrod did wasn't the first time that it was done, that means by repeating it had to have happened before the flood. And just as it'll happen again, probably in the end time, because Antichrist is just doing what Satan tried to do and what seemingly Nimrod tried to do and probably some uh, antediluvian Nephilim tried to do. It just makes sense that he's just following the same nothing new is under the sun sort of MO, which then sort of says, how do we how do we separate some of the things that might have happened before the flood and then again after the flood? It's, people will have to be very careful as they get into that. Um, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen before the flood. It's just, was it a repeat or was it actually first done there? And was that actually Nimrod then? And, you know, Nimrod is a foreign name for the entry in the Bible, and so it, it'll have probably you know some Shinar Sumerian some roots to it. Uh, so we don't know exactly what Nimrod's first name was. It was probably changed by the biblical writers to reflect the title of what he represented, but just my speculation there. So if that's the case, then did he take the name of somebody that lived before the flood? Because we see that sort of being a patriarchal thing, even though it crosses the floods. And a classic example of that would be Gilgamesh. So in the Gilgamesh epic, uh, you have Gilgamesh that is son of Lugalbanda, king of Uruk, and he's a later descendant of, of Nimrod uh, in the, of the same city, not saying he's a direct relative. But he's created by um, Nin or Ninsun, depending on the translation, likely Lugalbanda, who is, is named as his father. But you also have a Gilgamesh that's in the Book of Giants um, that is recorded that is part of these dreams that are coming about this great apocalypse. And so you see two different Gilgameshes. So I don't think they're the same because there's a story of a recreation for Gilgamesh after the flood. Now, I suppose you could say, well, it was really the Gilgamesh before the flood, and you know he's just inheriting that sort of legend or mythos. But then you're back into that nothing new is under the sun thing. So you're into that same sort of scenario. But I think we need to be open to the fact that Nimrod's name would pop up in the antediluvian time in a similar sort of fashion because he was probably renamed. And you get people like Gog and Magog that are mentioned in the Bible. That was giant sons before the flood of Iapetus, the parent god of the sea that Poseidon takes over for after the flood. So you have this sort of repeating and inheriting of the legacy as well that goes on in so many of the polytheist cultures. Wow, that's awesome. Well, getting it's getting about that time, Gary. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm excited to. I'm I'm just a few chapters into your book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy, but I'm excited to to finish it. And then you mentioned uh, book two is going to be coming out. Do you do you have a rough idea of when that'll be? No, I've just put the uh, sample chapters in front of the publishers, and they're excited to get it. And I'm waiting for them to get back to me as to where we go from there. Uh, obviously, I think it's going to be out this year. Uh, I think my inclination is is that we want to get it out sooner than later, but there's still the editing process to go through, the cover design, all the other things that sort of go through it. So 
Uh, it's not going to be out in the first quarter of this year. If it made it out in the second quarter, I would be very, very happy. And it's specifically targeted at Christians. And it goes way deeper for Christians because uh, that's what they were asking me for. Because I said I didn't want to write a sequel because I, I and I didn't want to be redundant. But because of the types of questions that I was getting and the information that people wanted, I wanted to put this information together in a way that would make sense to them and also help define end-time prophecy. So it's going to go through the patriarchless uh, Canaanites for people, and and I'll track through, you know, eponymous and pa- patrial sort of ways as to who I think that patriarch was, um, and take that back to a name. I'll identify all of the other tribes that I think are giants that are over and above. I'll include like the Avim and the Emim, but I'll go into some other tribes like the Cadmonim. And I'll also try and show how they kind of show up in in other cultures as well to give people an idea of that. I'll go through the angelic hierarchy because uh, people need to know that. Uh, it's a little bit different than the standard one. It's not a whole lot, but I think it cleans it up a little bit, at least from my perspective, it does. And then uh, I'll link that in. I'll also cover things that I didn't cover off in, in the first book that I didn't want to get down the rabbit trail on. So I didn't cover the Jesuits. I called covered all of the organizations that would have produced the Jesuits, but I'll also cover off the, uh, I'll give the Thelemic tree hierarchy in terms of how it's uh, understood in the occult organizations, which are the trunk organizations, and talk about how the branches sort of fit into that. And then I'll start linking that to the end time and how we make sort of bridges with cognitive words that are in Greek that we can identify as being similar or the same that's used in the Old Testament to sort of get that context that we need for some of the terms used in the New Testament for the end time. Oh, that sounds awesome. Can't wait for that. Hopefully you beat the uh, the alien deception um here soon <laughs> uh, as far as uh, the release of your book so that we can be be prepared gary wayne again thank you for coming on this was a blast well thank you for inviting me thanks so much gary thanks gary all right till next time thanks guys